I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. I'm Katie Couric, and welcome to Next Question. For the last nine months, as the coronavirus swept across the world, devastating so many lives in its wake, Scientists have been working around the clock to develop a safe and effective vaccine in record time. And now, in just the last few weeks, the result from all of this hard work is starting to come in. And it's good news. Really good news. Remember what that's like? Pfizer has sought emergency use authorization for its vaccine after a study showed it was 95% effective. AstraZeneca has seen very promising results as well, although they're still figuring out the dosing. And then there's Moderna, a tiny biotech firm compared to these giants, which has also cracked the code on a vaccine using a novel approach. Stephen Hogue is a doctor, a scientist, and the president of Moderna. I had a wide-ranging conversation with him about his company, the pandemic, and the vaccines in the pipeline. Who gets them? and when. Call this Vaccines for Dummies. I started by asking him how excited he was when he first heard the news that Moderna was making it happen. Dr. Hogue, last week Moderna announced it had developed a vaccine that was 94.5% effective. What went through your head when you heard the news? Well, I, uh, I had the privilege of actually hearing it live from the Independent Data and Safety Monitoring Board. It's called a DSMB. Um, so you're called into a virtual room uh, with eight or nine senior academics, real leaders in their field, and they start reading out the results to you. And um, the first bit was a little bit of the procedure, and the second, they started calling out the case numbers, and they said that of the 95 cases, 90 cases were on placebo. And I'll have to admit, I went ear to ear with a grin and almost didn't hear anything else for the next two minutes. Um, it was this feeling of incredible relief. We've been working really hard for a year, uh, but for many years on this technology. And it's just this feeling of, oh my goodness, it, it hasn't all been for nothing. There is going to be a vaccine that's available. Uh, it quickly passed. 
within, within about a minute or two, it turned into this dread of the work we have ahead to manufacture and distribute hundreds of millions of doses of the vaccine. But, but it was a, a really wonderful day last Sunday. Tell me what that means when you say, without getting too in the weeds, uh, 90, per, 90 of the patients were on placebo. I mean, can you just boil down the news you heard? And, and so somebody at home without any kind of medical background might understand? Sure, yeah. Let me, let me start by describing the study that we, were, um, that we were running. So the clinical trial involved 30,000 participants. And the value of these clinical trials is that they're placebo controlled. And so you randomize people one to one to either receive a placebo or the vaccine. And so there's 15,000 people that received placebo and 15,000 people that received vaccine. And for the last two to three months, those people have been going about their daily lives, hopefully practicing social distance and other things, but ultimately going to work and doing things that might give them a risk of infection. And what we've been doing is an independent data and safety monitoring board has been counting up every time somebody becomes infected with COVID, where you confirm it's COVID and they become ill. Now, maybe severe COVID or mild, it doesn't really matter. They're, they're just trying to see whether a case has happened. And those cases are counted up until there's overwhelming statistical evidence that there were more cases on the placebo arm than the vaccine arm. And as that happened over the last three months, what eventually came to transpire, what we learned about last Sunday, was that they had reached 90 cases, 90 out of the 15,000 people on placebo had developed COVID. And that contrasted with, in the 15,000 that received vaccine, only five cases, only five people had contracted COVID, which meant that the relative protection was about 94.5%, um, the difference between the 90 out of 15,000 and the five out of 15,000. You described the moments before the call revealing these results as the most nerve-wracking hour of, ner of a nerve-wracking week of a nerve-wracking year. Yes. <laughs> it's been really long. I think we've all lived it. Uh, and so our experience at Moderna and my experience have been um, no different in some ways than what we've all gone through in our lives. Uh, everything feels disrupted. Everything feels like it's on pause. The, the difference for us is that we have been working nearly 24-7 for about, about nine, 10 months now, um, never a day off, uh, trying to advance this vaccine you know, on the belief that, that it was going to make a difference. But until you have proof, it's just belief. And so... Uh, it was a, it was a nerve wracking that final hour, that final weekend, when you knew the results were in, but it's a bit like it's at the Oscars and it's an in an envelope. You're not allowed to open the envelope, only the independent data safety monitoring board is allowed to open it. And they've got a scheduled meeting two days from now. And so for those 48 hours, you're just tossing and turning. Um, my wife said I, was, I didn't sleep the entire time. I thought I did, but apparently I tossed and turned all night, both nights. And I know everybody else that was involved in the study, even outside of the company, probably felt the same way. Uh, and then, of course, you get news that they've gone into the room, um, and so they've, the virtual room, they've started their meeting, and you're just waiting, just waiting for them to call you in, and an hour goes by, and a second hour goes by, and you're, you're, you're biting your fingernails going, wow, what's going on? How could it be so difficult? Uh, and it was finally at that last moment uh, that we were let in about noon on Sunday uh, and heard the results live. Operation Warp Speed basically encouraged a lot of companies to come up with vaccines. And in fact, Pfizer and now AstraZeneca uh, are coming up with vaccines. How do you feel about these other companies uh, that are coming forward with their own vaccines? Is that good news? I think it's great news. Um, I think if you 
everybody sort of accepts that the only way we're really going to stop this pandemic is a vaccine. Um, we have to beat the virus everywhere. And since there's billions of us on the planet, seven billion of us, we need many billions of doses. And so from the beginning, even from earliest part of this year, we said the most vaccine we'd probably be able to make in 2021 is about a billion doses. And we're still on track for that. But one billion doses will only cover a half a billion people, 500 million people. Because there are two, two doses per person. Exactly. That's right. So since our vaccine requires two doses per person, it would only cover 500 million. So there are literally billions of doses more that need to be created by others. So as a group of companies, we've actually been rooting for each other because if we only end up with 500 million people covered, the pandemic doesn't end. We don't get our lives back. Um, and so what's really been happening between the companies coordinated by Operation Warp Speed, but frankly, I think between the companies organically, is an unprecedented level of coordination because everybody recognizes that we all have to deliver. Uh, when, when any one of us um, achieves a result like we did last week, uh, we often email each other and I emailed congratulations to AstraZeneca just this week because we're counting on each other. We're counting on them to come through just like they were counting on us to come through to beat back the virus. Why is it so difficult to produce huge amounts of these vaccines? No, it's the numbers. Uh, if you think about it, the absolute numbers of vaccines, there's not many things that we create as drugs in this world, and drugs have to be made to a very high standard of quality, um, that have that degree of complexity that we make billions of. Right? We make lots of things that are smaller, um, but it's the, uh, it's the complexity of making a medicine making sure it's done to the highest quality standards and the highest degree of control that adds the additional challenge. It's not just like trying to create something else that we might create billions of every year as a society. And so you have to invest in, in manufacturing. You have to invest in purpose-built manufacturing lines. You have to train people. They have to get extremely good. You can't get it right 95% of the time. It has to be multiple sigma. You have to be 99.999% right. Um, and you have to establish quality systems around that that allow you to measure it and control it. Make sure that when somebody takes your vaccine, whether it's Moderna's or AstraZeneca's or Pfizer's, they can be sure it's a high quality vaccine that's going to work for them. That process just takes time and money and effort from people. And even with the incredible financial resources that the U.S. government has brought to bear um, and many of the companies have brought to bear, it's still a huge lift. Um, and there's still lots of potholes along the way that you have to plan for and, and get around. Let's talk about the technique that you and Pfizer use, something called messenger RNA. Mm -hmm. Tony Fauci tried to explain it to me. I think I got it, but I'm going to give you a chance. Can you explain for people who have an eighth grade understanding of science how this actually works? This is one, Katie. I might have to take a couple stabs at because I'm still working on explaining this to some of my family. <laughs> uh, after, after 10 years in the field, it's, it's, there's something a little bit counterintuitive about it, but, um, but let me try. So messenger RNA is a molecule that exists in all of our cells um, that is the instructions for making every protein in your body, every protein in life. Um, and so it's just a set of instructions. It, it literally tells a cell what protein to make and how much of it to make. Uh, it's a very natural molecule. In fact, it, it's one of the oldest molecules in life. And what we do uh, as a messenger RNA company is rather than giving you the protein, which is what most vaccines do, if you think about a flu vaccine, you'll grow up the protein in eggs or something like that, you'll purify it, you'll then administer it, and the uh, body will have an immune response to that protein. So it'll learn how to fight against the virus that has that protein. 
What messenger RNA is, is it's just the instructions for the, the body to make that protein itself. It sort of works with your body, not on your body. It provides the instructions to your immune system so they can make copies of the protein as if they'd encountered the virus, as if SARS-CoV-2 had snuck in, but actually it hadn't. They just got one piece of instructions, one part of the virus that they then make copies of that protein and then learn how to defend against it, in this case, the spike protein. So it, it triggers... probably... Too, it, no, too I, I think I'm getting it. So it triggers the immune response in both cases, but in this case, you're not... You're, you're not injecting the body with a version of the virus. You're simply instructing the cells how to deal with the virus if, in fact, it happens. That's right. That's exactly right. And the, the, the big difference is, do you inject a virus or a broken piece of the virus, or do you just inject um, the instructions for what the virus looks like, if you will, a wanted poster, that then the immune system gets to learn on and train on, and when it encounters the virus, it's not naive. Uh, your immune system knows what it's looking for, says, oh, I've seen this. I've seen this wanted poster before, and I'm now going to be able to protect it. So this is the method that Moderna and Pfizer use, but AstraZeneca's is more old school? It is. Um, it's, more, um, it's more the traditional way. Uh, there, are th there are six big efforts in vaccines under the rubric of Operation Warp Speed. And so there's two messenger RNA companies, and there's two companies working on viral vectors is what they're called. And so AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson are both working on viral vectors. What this means is you take another virus, in the case of AstraZeneca, it's a chimpanzee virus, and you cause that virus to make a copy of one of the proteins on the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And so it kind of makes a mimic. And you inject that, you grow up that virus, and then you inject that virus into people, and it sneaks into their immune system, infects them because it's a virus, and makes copies of that protein. That technology, using, using engineered viruses, um, has been around a bit longer. Um, the longest uh, in the tooth technology is actually something called recombinant proteins. Um, and the last couple of companies, so Sanofi and a company called Novavax, are working on recombinant protein approaches. That's where, similar to what you're used to with your flu vaccine, you grow up the protein, in a culture or in the case of fluids in eggs, and you purify that protein out from the surface of the virus, and then you inject that piece of the virus into the body to generate a new response. Knowing that you may have a vested interest, Dr. Hogue, um, is there any approach that is preferable over the others? Well, I'll, I'll confess I'm, um, I'm 10 years in to a story believing messenger RNA was going to be the best approach. So I'm not 100% objective, but I am a scientist as well. And I think they all have pluses and minuses. Uh, one of the advantages of messenger RNA that we've always thought uh, is frankly is being brought to bear right now is the fact that it's so versatile, the fact that it's really just information. It's more of a digital technology where we can use our systems, our manufacturing systems for any vaccine has allowed us to go incredibly fast. And I think that proof is in the pudding in the sense that both Pfizer and Moderna, two messenger RNA approaches, have been first to be able to produce phase three results, uh, despite these being new technologies, and hopefully are gonna be able to distribute millions of doses this year. Being objective, I think the other approach that um, is the most established is the recombinant protein approaches. So the approach being taken by Sanofi and Novavax, where you make the protein, you purify it using pretty traditional approaches, and then you inject it into the arm directly. And that's a that's a approach that's got many decades of experience um, and ultimately 
works well within the infrastructure for vaccine distribution um, that already exists out there because it's you know decades old. Uh, and so if you were to sort of pick on the extremes, the fast and new, um, and hopefully in the long term, I believe, you know, quite quite positively disruptive would be messenger RNA and the more established um, and precedented recombinant protein are probably the most known. The adenoviral vector approaches being taken by AstraZeneca and, and Johnson and Johnson are all equally valid. There's, there's not really the same history as a recombinant protein, and they're not quite as fast and simple as messenger RNA, but uh, we'll be very grateful if they're able to deliver billions of doses and help stop the pandemic. And so it, you're rooting for all of them. And, and frankly, I would take any of them. Uh, I hope to get a Moderna vaccine personally, selfishly, but I would, I would feel comfortable um, based on the data that I'm seeing on phase three receiving it. When we come back, more with Moderna President, Dr. Stephen Hogue. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Once again, Dr. Stephen Hogue, president of Moderna. Let's talk about messenger RNA. Does it portend a lot of exciting breakthroughs for other diseases? You know, I'm thinking, why can't we come up with a cure for cancer if we can get Operation Warp Speed to develop all these different vaccines in record time? It's a great question. And we at Moderna have been working on this for about a decade. Um, and so we actually have five programs in clinical trials against cancer right now using messenger RNA, including at least two programs that are vaccine approaches and three programs that are therapeutic approaches. And those are in earlier stages of development. And so they're phase one and phase two studies. Uh, and we're still proving the potential of the technology there. But we have approaches in other therapeutic areas as well, rare diseases and autoimmune diseases. And we do think Ultimately, this technology will change the way people make medicine in the future. If you think about it, we move away from creating drugs that, that work on your body. They kind of come from the outside and do something to it and actually try and move to a world where we're just providing information to your cells, to your body in a way that's used to processing it 
Um, and the instructions for, for how to either treat a disease like cancer or prevent a disease like SARS-CoV. And I think that's the exciting part of messenger RNA that's generated a lot of enthusiasm for us over the last decade. We never intended to be a COVID-19 company. Uh, we still don't think of ourselves as a COVID-19 company. Uh, we've certainly gotten a lot of attention and become a bit of a household name because of it. And, and so in that sense, we have to recognize it. But I think the potential of the technology is, is just starting to be discovered. And I'm really excited about the work we're doing exactly in cancer right now, because I think that that potential could impact our lives as well. Other than cancer, do you see promise in other diseases like, I don't know, Parkinson's, for example, and some of these neuromuscular disorders, uh, Alzheimer's? I mean, do you think that that you can can sort of help the body respond to some of these things when it goes haywire? I think so. The question is when, right? If you, um, if you ask somebody like me, uh, an entrepreneur, um, it's just a question of time. And I do think some of those diseases, will t we will get there and I absolutely believe will make a difference, but it will probably take us a decade. And the reason I say that is there's a lot of complexity in some of the diseases you were listing out, Alzheimer's and, and, and Parkinson's. Um, there's a huge inflammatory component of the immune system there, um, but there's also other things happening. And so it'll take some time to figure out how to use a new technology like this to try and address those diseases. Whereas some of the things like infectious disease, metabolic diseases, heart diseases, where we're actually working right now in clinical trials, um, you have a better understanding of what's going to be required uh, when you use a new technology like this. So I view it over the 20, 30 year time horizon as absolutely. Uh, and that's what we're committed to trying to do. And obviously cancer, as you mentioned, is a huge area where you think you can have an impact. Absolutely. Yeah, we've made, in fact, if you look at our pipeline, the second largest area of clinical work we're doing, clinical trials, is in cancer. Any particular cancer? I'm just curious. So we have our most advanced programs. There's three of them. Um, one is in uh, skin cancer, and so melanoma. There's a, it's in a, a randomized phase two trial right now. We have a program in head and neck cancer, squamous cell carcinoma of the head and neck. Um, that's in an expansion cohort. And then we have an ovarian cancer uh, phase two uh, study that's up and running as well. There's other cancers we're looking in, but those are the three most advanced. So exciting, I think, uh, to hear about this and hopefully colon cancer, that's my particular area of, of interest and, I know, and concern. Yeah. So hopefully you guys can work on that too. Let me move back to the vac uh, vaccine sort of in general. Let's talk about distribution if we could, Dr. Hogue. How involved are you in distribution and how concerned are you about rapid distribution to the populations who need it the most? So I think we're all deeply um, focused on making sure the vaccine rapidly becomes available as many people as possible. Uh, selfishly, we want our lives back, but, but truly it's been about all the work we've done is all for naught if we can't get the vaccine in the arms of people who, who need and want it. Um, so we've worked with the U.S. government, and particularly the folks at the Department of Defense under Operation Warp Speed, so General Pernas team, pretty intensely over the summer and fall in anticipation of an approval or an emergency use authorization, such that you know, we now know down to the hour what's happening post-approval and post-authorization to try and get uh, the trucks rolling, if you will, to the states so they have access to the vaccine. We've been working to make sure they understand all of the characteristics of the vaccine, how it has to be stored and distributed. We've been working with um, companies that they brought in, like McKesson, uh, to, to start depoting and stockpiling some of the vaccine. 
Um, and we're going to continue to work around the clock, it seems. Uh, we're literally 24-7 as an operation right now um, to make sure that we're manufacturing on a regular schedule, delivering, those are getting filled, and then ultimately move into the distribution supply chain. It's important to note, though, that as a company, our limits, we, we have, we're only about 12, 1,300 people, mostly in Massachusetts. Uh, and so where we will hand off to the government and rely on the government for distribution is um, after filling at the factory and ultimately from a depot. Uh, distributing to the states is something that really only the, the United States government and the states can, can manage effectively. So that will be the primary mechanism by which people will get their vaccines through their state departments of health. Have you guys applied for emergency authorization already? If not, uh, what we've said is sometime in the next week or so, uh, we expect we will, but we've got work to do. We just got access to the data last week. Uh, and as you can imagine, there's a tremendous amount to pour over and to prepare uh, uh, an appropriate and high quality filing for the FDA. So we're working on that now. Expect that to happen um, in the next week or so. And then, uh, and then we're hoping for an emergency use authorization sometime in the second half of December. When do you think your vaccine can get out there? Do you have any timetable yet? It's entirely dependent upon the FDA. So, you know, I always want to make clear that they have a solemn and important responsibility to decide that it's appropriate to distribute. That we think the data is compelling and we're going to ask for permission to do that. But it's, it's a very important part of our society that we have entrepreneurship on the one hand and then we have strong civil service that actually provides a check on that and a review on that. And that is a key part of our industry. So the FDA are the only people that can decide when this happens. But on the assumption that they decide uh, within the next two to three weeks, let's say is in the middle of December, which is where we, we are, we're aiming ourselves. We wanna make sure that we have as much vaccine available as possible for the second half of December to start that distribution process. And what we've been working towards is about 20 million doses by the end of December that we'd be able to hand off to the folks at Operation World Speed so that they can actually literally get it into vaccination centers as fast as possible. And that would vaccinate 10 million people because two doses are required. That's right. So 20 million doses by the end of December would vaccinate 10 million people. But we'll continue manufacturing. And so almost every week or every other week from then forward, we will keep making deliveries. Um, we've committed to deliver um, the first 100 million doses to the United States government. And frankly, there are options for them to buy up to 500 million more. Uh, and so that first 100 million doses will be delivering, you know, on a straight schedule through January and February, and then perhaps continuing through March, April, and, uh, and May, depending upon whether there's a need. Who will get the vaccine first? Do you know, Dr. Hogue? I don't. It really is up to the CDC um, and their advisory committee on immunization practices. Um, at the end of the day, the federal government has, has delegated to them the responsibility of figuring out who gets it first. The, it's fair to say, though, that the CDC will just issue guidelines. Uh, what will really happen is Operation Warp Speed will distribute our 20 million doses in December to the states uh, in proportion to their jurisdictions. And then the individual states will look at the CDC guidelines, look at what's happening in their communities and decide the best place to deploy. I think if everything goes to the CDC guidelines, it's pretty clear that the healthcare providers, those frontline healthcare workers that we need to keep safe during the pandemic so that we can keep caring for people when they become ill, they're gonna be the first folks vaccinated. And there may be up to 20 million of them across the country. Those include people who need to work in nursing homes and, and hospitals and, and primary care clinics. 
And that's not just to make sure that they're protected from COVID for COVID's sake, but to make sure that they're able to do all the other important things to protect people who are having heart attacks or pneumonia or all the other things that, that happen in our day-to-day lives um, and that they're not out sick during this important time. Um, then I think you move to critical infrastructure. So frontline workers, people who work in food security, people who work in, um, in government, uh, you know, firefighters, police, first responders, uh, and then ultimately to those that are at the highest risk of, of severe COVID-19. So those over the age of 65 or those who have comorbid conditions. And I think that's where the CDC's recommendations will come out. Certainly based on the conversations, that's what it seems like will be the guidance. What about children, school-aged children? Will school-aged children be vaccinated? <laughs> I hope so. I got to tell you, as, as a parent uh, who's been doing uh, virtual school for, for most of the fall and expect to do it for a good part of the next year, um, I, I feel deeply the need to get our kids back in school, make sure the teachers are safe and get our kids back in school. And so as a company, Moderna, um, just like some of the other companies, have begun the work of showing the vaccine is safe and effective in children. Um, that starts with adolescence, so those 12 and up, and then you move into the 5 to 12-year-old school-age kids. Uh, and those studies are actually starting in the coming weeks uh, with us and others. The goal of those will be that by, let's say, the end of this school year, there'd be data to show the vaccine is safe and effective, you know, the right dose to give to children. And ultimately, we all want to make sure that everybody who's a school-age child could receive a vaccine before next school year so that we could, we could start in September of 2021, the normal school year, soccer games on Saturdays and everything that we've come to miss. So will kids be part of a, a, another clinical trial because they weren't part of the initial ones, correct? That's correct. Uh, they weren't part of the initial ones, um, and that's appropriate. You want to make sure a vaccine is safe and effective in adults before you enroll a kid. There's, there's, there's obviously a whole bunch of extra considerations, including the fact that a child um, you know, is immunologically can be different. And so you, can, you, you want to make sure that there's a, potential, a clear potential benefit to the vaccine before you give it to a child. So children were not initially involved in the phase three trials, but they are rapidly uh, getting um, tested in them right now. And those are much smaller trials. You do not need 30,000 people. It's more like a couple of thousand uh, children, because really all you're looking for there is to make sure that there's nothing surprising in terms of safety or the dose level that you need in a child. And that's not, you're not looking for infections as a measure of efficacy. I know diversity in clinical trials is critically important, and there hasn't been nearly enough in the past. How were you able to ensure that you did have a diverse population? Well, the, the first thing is we had to recognize that initially it wasn't very diverse. And so we started our clinical trial at the very end of July. And by the end of August, about one month in, we'd recruited about half the trial, about 15,000 of the 30,000 people. But the population was, was unfortunately not very diverse. Um, there was only four or 5% African-American. There was around 10% uh, those of Hispanic or Latinx uh, descent. And it was it was clear that we were not going to have, while that might be okay by historical standards, it was not going to be enough to generate real confidence in the vaccine in those communities. And so we took a very difficult choice. Um, the first week of September, we, we came out publicly and said, we're failing to meet our expectations. We need to look more like the country in terms of the ethnic makeup of our, of our trial. And therefore, we're going to slow down our clinical trial in the middle of a pandemic, uh, in a bit of a race against the virus and, and maybe a friendly race against other companies. That was a pretty tough choice to make, but it was one that we felt was the right thing to do. Uh, the reason we slowed down is that we, we thought uh, we need to go work with 
the 100 investigator sites across the country that we were working with, these are doctor's offices and local communities, um, and help them figure out how to reach out to those communities that are underrepresented, particularly the uh, black and Hispanic communities um, who are massively underrepresented in our study, and do everything we can to help you know, work with them, build trust with those communities. You have to leave the door open. You have to work three times as hard in places where there is not trust. And there's a huge trust deficit in those communities. We had to bring in new materials. We had to do training on bias. We had to do, we did a whole range of things. We even engaged um, Dr. Fauci and, and uh, the Surgeon General in outreach. Um, we brought in um, other experts and it was all focused on, let's do everything we can to try and invite those communities into the trial. We're really pleased to say that six or eight weeks later, um, when we completed enrollment, we'd actually increased the ethnic and racial makeup of the study to be almost bang on to the United States. Um, there was only 63% folks of, of white, non-Hispanic origin, or, or over 20% uh, uh, Hispanic or Latinx, which is obviously higher than you see in the country, and over 10% uh, Black or African American, which um, is a little bit lower than you see in the country, but substantially better than uh, It gives us great pleasure um, to have accomplished that, but that's just the first step. Uh, we know that the data, therefore, will be sufficiently representative that people from those communities can have confidence the vaccine was evaluated, and if it's effective, it's effective in them. And in fact, we announced that it looks terrific. The results look equally good in those populations. But that still requires us to work the next step to build trust with those communities to receive the vaccine. And there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy across the country, including in those communities, and we've got work to do there. The one source of optimism that I'll take from it is it, it did show that in the middle of a very difficult year on those sorts of issues, on, on race relations in particular, if you're willing to take the time, slow down and work, can build trust. It's hard work, but you can do it. Um, and I'm, I think we were proudest of all of those 100 sites and those investigators. They're the real heroes there. And actually, they went back into communities that had not wanted to participate, tried harder and built those relationships. So, so I, I take optimism from it. I, I, I always, uh, I'm optimistic by nature, um, but it does show that it requires more work, um, that if you're gonna correct an inequity or an imbalance, you're gonna have to do it with additional effort. It's not gonna come just from equity or balance. And as you say, you still have a lot of work to do to convince the population writ large that people of color can trust the medical establishment given the the very uh, checkered history with Tuskegee and operating on enslaved people. I mean, it's, it's gonna be a, a bit of a hill to climb, isn't it? It is, and the, the history here um, is horrible. Uh, and so this mistrust or this distrust is well-placed based on a lot of that history. Uh, there's, you know, and, and we were, were coming at this partnered with the federal government you know, through Operation Warp Speed, through NIH, uh, you know, coming forward and saying, hey, we're, we're a, a, an exciting new biotechnology company partnered with the federal government here to help. You don't start in a place of, of, of immediate trust. Uh, the thing that we discovered was most important is that you have to work with those, those voices that are already trusted in the community, whether those are faith-based leaders or people that are just present in the community offering healthcare advice, um, you, there, are, there are voices there who can actually carry that message. And you have to make sure they understand, and they have access to information, they make their own judgments about whether, whether to recommend this or not. And those that do can then become quite powerful advocates to their communities. But you're not gonna do it just by coming in and saying, hey, we're, we're here to help, because 
frankly, uh, the history on that, as you just pointed to in Tuskegee um, and other instances, has been quite, quite horrific. We'll be right back after this short break. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Let's talk about the storage requirements. Moderna and Pfizer's vaccines, Dr. Hogue, require special treatment, if you will. Cold temperatures for Moderna, subarctic temperatures for Pfizer, and outside those conditions, they have a limited shelf life. Does this give AstraZeneca's vaccine an edge because it doesn't have those requirements? It can be produced in mass quantities and can be shipped and uh, and it's and it's quite inexpensive. Are all those things pointing to a better situation for AstraZeneca? I I well I, I'm grateful for the fact that AstraZeneca can make many more doses. And so yes, uh, I think it, I think in some ways it is. Um, there are differences. So you know uh, if you look at our storage um, conditions, our our vaccine can be stored in a standard freezer or refrigerator. Uh, it doesn't require any dry ice or special equipment. Uh, most refrigeration comes with freezing, and the temperatures are the same as you'd have in your home fridge. So it's the kind of thing that exists in almost every pharmacy in this country, almost every doctor's office. Uh, we do need to be stored in the freezer part uh, for up to six months, and we only last about a month, 30 days, in the, in the refrigerator. Um, and that contrasts with AstraZeneca's, where you, you pointed to, I think they're, they're currently the most amenable distribution, where they, they last six months in the refrigerator. Now, they still require refrigeration. Uh, and so you still need a piece of equipment that exists, um, again, much more broadly available. Uh, but there are not vaccines right now that are stable at just room temperature that can go into those non-cold chain logistics. So I think the, the reality of the AstraZeneca vaccine, the reason why I was so excited about the announcement this week, is that um, although the efficacy wasn't as strong, uh, you know, the average efficacy was 70% versus 95%, the uh, potential for many more doses and for it being the ability to distribute them into areas that maybe don't have freezers but do have refrigerators 
um, provides a, a real opportunity here. Um, the cost of the vaccines, I mean, I, I think in general, cost does matter for sure. Um, and the AstraZeneca vaccine can be made more cheaply, which is good. Uh, but it's important to note that the costs of these vaccines, whether you're talking about you know, $5 or, or $20 um, is a, a, per dose, is a, is a fraction of the costs that are being incurred uh, just with things like testing, um, you know, which we all seem to do on a, on a, a regular basis or any of the other uh, interventions. And so they're, they're, quite, they're quite reasonably inexpensive. One of the things that I think um, is exciting about vaccines is it's often said that next to clean water, nothing has done more for human health than vaccines, um, economically and socially in terms of value. But there is a focus on the difference between the you know, three pounds or the $5 and $20 of the prices. And I, in that sense, I do think it's, it's, it's good that there is a lower cost option in the AstraZeneca vaccine. So how much will the Moderna vaccine cost? So we've entered into agreements with governments. The government of the United States agreements, its average price about $20 per dose. Um, and so the first doses uh, are you know, 15 to $16. Uh, and that's you know, where we're, we're selling it to. Almost all of the sales has, have been to governments, to be fair, uh, because governments are in the best positions to distribute this. This is not something in the first half of next year during the pandemic phase that many of us are going to go to CVS and get or Rite Aid or Walgreens and get. It's, it's really going to come through your uh, public health departments. So at $20 a dose, that's, that's $40 for two doses, roughly. Um, it's, you know, it's hopefully uh, not a big barrier uh, to broad adoption. In fact, the, we, we priced it that way with the U.S. government uh, and sold it to the U.S. government on the principle that it would be given free to every American regardless of their ability to pay. So we didn't, we didn't try and maximize price or anything. We said we want to make sure this is given away. And the U.S. government has agreed that they will not charge anybody for those doses, regardless of your ability to pay. And so essentially the vaccine is going to be free to Americans. Every vaccine that's being created. Every, every vaccine purchased by Warp, Operation Warp Speed, including the Moderna vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine, all of that will be free to Americans through the, um, the Warp Speed initiative. So, Will I get to pick which vaccine I want? I, <laughs> I don't think so. I don't know. Um, it's, it's, that, is, that is one of the... The, the, um, the reality is that the... Uh, the Department of Health in your state um, may or may not want to engage in that kind of, you know, <laughs> letting people choose which one they'd like. Uh, I laugh only because every family member I have will be really upset if they don't receive the Moderna vaccine. <laughs> but uh, the truth is I got family all over the country and I don't think it's going to be possible. Um, and so uh, you will get, you will receive a vaccine um, that's approved from the FDA, uh, that's safe and that's going to provide a benefit. Um, the Department of Health in your state might make a determination to say that certain high-risk populations we want to get a vaccine that's got a higher efficacy, like the Moderna vaccine with 95%. Um, and if you're healthier, maybe we're going to give you one that has a lower efficacy because you don't need it as much. Some of those choices um, may happen in terms of how they allocate, but it'll really fall to the Departments of Health in the states um, to determine how to distribute it. I don't think it'll be a situation where consumers will get to decide until until everybody's had a chance to get a vaccine from the federal government, and that may be next summer, at which point maybe people will have the ability to go to CVS and make their own buy. Let me go through quickly some questions from social media. How long will the immunity provided by the vaccines last? I'm optimistic that we're going to see immunity last more than a year. 
Um, I think a year seems pretty safe at this point. We don't have a year's worth of follow-up, but we've got six months in some of our studies. And it looks like the early data shows that we're achieving levels of immunity in the blood that we think will be protective for at least a year. So you're going to have to get a shot like this or two shots every year, potentially, like a flu shot? In the worst case scenario, you'd need a booster once a year like a flu shot. I think it's unlikely that that's going to be necessary. And the reason I say that is when you see vaccines that are this effective, 95% in our case, um, and it's really the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines that I'm talking about that are this effective. I think 70% for AstraZeneca is a little bit lower, but 95%, when you see vaccines that are 95% effective, that's kind of like your measles vaccine or some of the other tetanus vaccines that we're used to. You don't need to get those every year. You can go every five years, every 10 years, maybe even once in your life. And so when you see this kind of efficacy, uh, you know, protection, it, I think it augurs well, it bodes well for the fact that maybe you won't need one every year, maybe every five years, or maybe only when you end up you know, with waning immunity. Um, you get a, a test to show that you have lower immunity in your blood and you just get a booster maybe once every five or 10. Will the vaccine prevent spreading of the virus? So we don't know for sure yet, but there are hints that it will. And so we're optimistic that the vaccine will prevent infections. We know from the studies we've run that it prevents disease. And so that's probably the most important thing. If you never get sick, you never have symptoms, you never get hospitalized, it kind of moved through you and you never knew it was there, um, then maybe it doesn't matter as much. But the reason is that um, the, the studies that we're running, what we, the endpoints that we were counting were when people got sick, because people could tell you they got sick. They could call you up and say, I'm not feeling well, and you could test them. And that's how we knew that those cases had happened. In order to figure out what somebody got sick but didn't have an infection, what's called asymptomatic infection, you actually have to test them at regular intervals over time. And so we're going to bring everybody back in on the study at three months and six months and 12 months and figure out if they became infected asymptomatically. But that takes time. And so we won't really get that data until the early part of next year. What are possible side effects from the vaccine? Well, fortunately, there haven't been any safety issues in our vaccine, and I haven't seen any reported for the others as well. So that's good news. Um, the kinds of side effects, therefore, that people are seeing are not really safety, uh, but they're more tolerability. Think of them as the aches and pains that you get when you get a vaccine. When, when you go get a flu vaccine, people will say you may have some muscle aches and pains, joint aches and pains, a headache. You may occasionally rarely have a fever. Those are the sorts of things that have been seen. Mostly, it's been a couple of days of duration, mild to moderate um, aches and pains that you see with many other vaccines. The good news on that is those aren't really side effects with side effects in and that's the way people think about them. But actually, that is your body's immune system getting turned on by the proteins in the vaccine or the mRNA instruction of the vaccine so that it can protect you against SARS-CoV-2. And so while people think of that maybe as an adverse event, as not something they want, it's actually a sign that your immune system is kicked in and ready to protect you. That brings me to my next question. Um, are mRNA vaccines problematic for people who have autoimmune disease? There's no evidence that mRNA medicines are problematic for autoimmune disease. If anything, I think they, they might be safer, uh, although we have, to, we have to see that over time. Um, the reason I'd say that is that there, there's no viral vector. There's no virus that's infecting you here. So there's a lot of other proteins in a viral vector a vaccine, like the AstraZeneca or Johnson & Johnson ones, that, that could do other things to your immune system. And similarly, in the recombinant protein uh, vaccines, you usually give an adjuvant, which can kick off your immune system. Um, in a non-specific way. 
Uh, in the case of the mRNA vaccines, there's neither of those things. Um, it's really purely the information. And so there's reason for optimism there, but there's really no data yet. Um, certainly there's no evidence that it's, it's less safe. I guess immunotherapy can sometimes put your immune system in an overdrive. So can mRNA put your immune system in overdrive for certain patients? So it really depends on what you're making with the mRNA. Uh, and the short answer for the vaccines is, is no, um, because the mRNA uh, is just making the spike protein in the coronavirus. And so your immune system is in overdrive against the coronavirus uh, and only will get turned on if it sees the coronavirus in the future. We do, in the case of cancer vaccines, or in the case of some of our cancer therapies, try and induce an immune response and ramp it up. And so there are definitely cases where we'll express things that will try and kick off your immune system. But in, we do those very different types of things in cancer where we're trying to, as you just said, turn on the immune system so it starts attacking things, in that case, the cancer. Got it. Okay. What about pregnant women, Dr. Hogue? So uh, we do need to make sure the vaccine is safe in pregnant women. Uh, we're in discussions with the FDA right now, as are the other vaccine developers, to figure out the best way to do that. There's a couple of ways to do it. One is you run a small study. Um, the other is that you just follow people over time who incidentally get pregnant and make sure through like a registry that there's no, there's no safety issues there. We have completed all of the necessary preclinical work to show that there's no reproductive toxicity issues. We, we believe it's going to be safe. Um, but what remains to be done is just follow that more carefully and make sure that there are no, no showstoppers or concerns. Do you feel that safety has been compromised because of the speed in which these vaccines have been developed? I do not. Um, I think actually this has got to be the gold standard for how you respond to pandemics in the future. Um, if you think about the size of the trials that have been run and the deliberate nature in which they've run through it, we've run through a phase one study, a phase two study of 600 people, and now a phase three study of 30,000 people. That's not commonly done for any drug that's approved. In fact, it's a huge number. Uh, and if you add to that that we did that and Pfizer did that with 30,000 and AstraZeneca's got 25,000, there's going to be hundreds of thousands of people that have been tested across these vaccine platforms. That's just not precedented. There's not that kind of confidence that we've ever really been able to have around new, new, new drugs, new medicines, new vaccines in this case. Um, and so I think people should take a huge degree of confidence from that. Now, we don't have long-term follow-up. To be fair, we do not have two years of history post that vaccine. Um, and so we're going to need to follow that very closely. But the overwhelming majority, like 99-plus percent events that have been seen historically with drugs and vaccines happen in the first two months after your vaccine, not two years later. Um, and when you say you've got that kind of confidence that you've looked really intensely for the first two months and you've got hundreds of thousands of people you've looked in, I think you can take a lot of confidence. I certainly do. Um, and I don't think there's been any sacrifices on safety. Um, we have moved quickly. I think the biggest risk taken were financial. All the way through, there were billions of dollars of risk taken financially. And in that sense, I think the American people and the federal government deserve a lot of credit. Um, Congress, through the CARES Act and, and the administration on warp speed, um, I think underwrote, um, the American people underwrote the development of vaccines for the entire world. If you look at the vaccines that are now getting bought by everybody else, whether it's Japan or Europe or the rest of the world, including in low and middle income countries, it's really, it's really these six. Um, made in the USA. Made in the USA. And I, I think um, while we did it to protect ourselves, it's something that I have been proud of uh, as I've watched unfold just as an American because um, we, although we didn't participate in the WHO activities and, and many of the things that were multilateral 
we did as a, as a country underwrite the creation of, of the solution, of the six solutions um, that we think are going to get deployed most broadly across the world. And, and did it in record time and relied a lot on American ingenuity and the, you know, the high quality of American civil service uh, and, and workers to, to, to make this happen. And I, I think it's something we'll, we will look back on and, and be proud of. Someone asked, if I get the vaccine, am I protected against COVID, even if 50% of other people are vaccinated? Yes. So the vaccine that we're, the, the, the studies that we're running are happening in the middle of the pandemic. And so nobody else is vaccinated. Um, and so if we're offering 95% protection against COVID in the middle of the pandemic in, in very hot areas, um, you can have confidence that even if the people around you aren't vaccinated, that you will not be getting COVID. What we don't know, and I think what's undermining that question is, um, will the virus still be passing between us? And if you've got vaccinated, maybe you don't get sick, but what about the other 50% of people who didn't get vaccinated? And in that case, I think the answer is, yes, they will probably still be at risk until we cross a threshold of 60 to 70% of people that have been vaccinated or have immunity because they were sick. And that's just because the virus will circulate. Finally, can this virus mutate, Dr. Hogue, and create a new strain of COVID, COVID-21, for example, where you're gonna have to go back to square one and start all over again? How possible is that? Not meaning to, to rain on your well-deserved parade. Um, I think it's the thing that should uh, always concern us. Um, pandemics do happen and they happen at a regular interval. So this virus um, has evolved. It has mutated a little bit during the year of 2020, this year of 2020. Um, fortunately, the mutations have, have not been enough to move away from protection from our vaccines. And I think they won't be. Um, if I were to sort of conjecture, I'd say this virus would have to make a lot of changes to avoid the vaccines that are currently in development, not just the Moderna one. That's because we're making the whole spike protein. There are you know, 1,700 amino acids, little pieces of protein on it. And evolution or mutation works one amino acid at a time. So if our immune system can recognize all 1,700, you can change a few of those amino acids. You're really gonna have to make whole scale changes, hundreds of them before it's unrecognizable to your immune system. And the problem with that for a virus is the protein has a job to do. It's like a, a key fitting in a lock. You can't make that many changes uh, from a mutation perspective before actually it just stops working and maybe the virus stops being able to infect you. So I think SARS-CoV-2, I'm very optimistic that it's not gonna mutate around um, our vaccines and we're gonna, we're gonna get through this. Your question though is about COVID-21. <laughs> Will there be another coronavirus pandemic? And the answer there is almost certainly yes. Probably not this virus, but at some point in the decade or 100 years ahead of us, um, a different coronavirus will move out of animals, find its way into humans, and we will have no immunity to it. Uh, and then we'll be racing again to beat it again. That is almost inevitable as well. But do you think the technology that you all have established will help create new vaccines in the future in a much more expedited way? I hope so. I really hope that becomes a, a long-lasting benefit of what we've been through in 2020 is that governments around the world, including the US, look at the technologies that were most useful and say, well, we did something epic, heroic. We did in one year the thing that nobody thought was possible. Now let's figure out how to do it in six months. Now let's figure out how we can respond more quickly uh, in the next pandemic. 
But I think it will be technologies like messenger RNA um, that are going to be at the center of that because, because at the end of the day, they're so flexible. Uh, and so I'm very optimistic that we will get better and better um, at being able to beat back pandemics uh, with technology like messenger RNA and others, perhaps even therapeutics. Well, Dr. Hogue, Stephen Hogue, thank you so much. You were awesome. Um, really, thank you. I, I understood probably 94% of what you told me. <laughs> I, I don't believe that for a second. I'm sure you got it all. <laughs> That does it for this bonus episode of Next Question. I'm Katie Couric. Thank you so much for listening and have a very happy and safe holiday season. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartRadio and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are Katie Couric, Courtney Litz, and Tyler Klang. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen. Our show producer is Beth Ann Macaluso. The associate producers are Emily Pinto and Derek Clements. Editing by Derek Clements, Dylan Fagan, and Lowell Berlanti. Mixing by Dylan Fagan. Our researcher is Gabriel Luzer. For more information on today's episode, go to katiecouric.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at katiecouric. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.